0: You are listening to Bitcoin, Blockchain, and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. Privacy is essential for a free society. It allows people to dissent, have independent thoughts, hold people accountable without fear of retribution. Financial privacy is a key part of that. Money allows us to interact with the world around us, and while things like our social media posts might be our stated preferences, our financial choices are our revealed preferences. It's us putting our money where our mouths are. It demonstrates not who we profess to be, but who we actually are, as revealed by the choices that we make. Being able to peek into our financial data allows others a deeper insight into our lives than most people realize. Financial privacy and financial surveillance are kind of wonky terms but what finance refers to on a very practical level it's the very intimate details of how you interact with the world around you so financial surveillance means someone seeing that you bought that wedding dress that you bought that birth control, that you support someone on OnlyFans, that you support WikiLeaks, uh, that you pay to see a marriage counselor twice a week, that you just hired the services of a divorce lawyer, or you've been undergoing treatment in an addiction facility. Financial privacy simply means the ability to partake in daily activities with dignity without having to reveal them to the world. Financial privacy, like privacy itself, is essential for a free society because the movement of our money reveals a treasure trove of information about our relationships, our jobs, our beliefs, our habits. Financial privacy allows us to support causes that we believe in without fear of retribution, to flee dangerous situations without fear of being tracked, to live our daily lives without feeling like every choice we make is on display and needs to be self-censored. Indeed, how can we truly have a free society if the way that we in interact with the world around us is constantly monitored and controlled yet despite the clear importance of financial privacy it has all but disappeared in today's world i created a channel to teach people how to carve out privacy in their digital lives and protect their privacy but the hardest part of the whole jigsaw puzzle the thing that i you know had the most trouble explaining to people how to do is how to carve out financial privacy, and that is because of the stranglehold that central entities have over the entire system. It is the hardest part of privacy. If you want to send money anywhere, you need to use digital payment rails, like Swift, Chess, ACH, Fedwire, SEPA, Synapse. They are all heavily regulated systems where governments hold the reins of control. You can only access them through intermediaries, and you have to ask permission in order to use them. This enables censorship of entire industries through government covert programs like Operation Choke Point, because governments are able to dictate who has access to the financial world and who doesn't. What's more is that the gatekeepers of these systems have erected surveillance points at each juncture, monitoring all activities taking place in the digital financial realm. If we want to reclaim financial privacy, we're not gonna find our solutions in the traditional financial world. I have lost all hope that we're gonna be able to legislate privacy back into that world, into this system where payment rails are controlled by governments and banks. We need another system, but luckily, There are solutions. So in this talk, I want to dive deep into financial privacy. Financial surveillance has become so normalized in today's society that people instinctively bristle at the idea that a person might be allowed to spend their own money without governments knowing about it. And they think that this financial system can't and shouldn't operate without pervasive tracking and monitoring. So I first want to try to disarm this pernicious narrative so that we no longer take it for granted. I want to remind people that this total financial surveillance is actually a relatively new phenomenon. So we'll talk about the history of how this surveillance has come about and why it's essential that we reclaim the narrative around privacy. Financial privacy is not just normal, it's also essential for a free society. And then I'll talk about how you can reclaim more privacy in your financial activities. First, obviously, there's cash. Cash is great. But we'll discuss its limitations, especially in a global digital economy. Then there are digital alternatives, specifically cryptocurrencies. And while decentralised cryptocurrencies do offer the hope of censorship-resistant money, most are far from private. It depends on which currency you use, and most importantly, it depends on how you use it, even if you're using currencies that prioritize privacy. So we'll dive into techniques used to track cryptocurrency payments and de-anonymize transactions, and I'll explain what you can do to stay more private when using them. Everything I'll talk about is perfectly legal, I'll just say. So if you're bristling at this idea, it's all legal. You just have to choose to opt in, and it's easy to opt in. So if you're watching at home and maybe haven't yet taken the dive into cryptocurrencies, if you are interested in privacy, I encourage you to start learning more about crypto. Reclaiming privacy in the traditional financial system has become all but impossible, but an alternative monetary system where we can build in privacy from scratch That's exciting. Cryptocurrencies offer the best chance of financial privacy that we have in the digital world if, and that's a big if, you use them properly. So let's start by talking about the current state of financial data collection. TLDR, it's not great. Every time you use a bank card, countless entities get access to your data. So there's your bank, there's the card network, there's the merchant, there's the payment processor, point of sale systems, the retailer's bank, mobile wallets and financial apps if you've connected your transactions to those and tie them to your purchases. And then there are the thousands of entities that this data is then sold to. And yes, people are selling your data, even your bank, especially your bank and it's perfectly legal for them to do so. Your financial activity is ending up in countless profiles that are sold all over the internet. Most people don't know that this is happening, or they've been trained not to care. In fact, many people are eager to announce that they have nothing to hide. Who hears that all the time? I have nothing to hide. It's a phrase that's used as as this declaration of moral purity. But the fact is that financial surveillance is responsible for undermining the freedom and safety of billions of people every single day. Just look at those in Hong Kong who lined up for hours at train stations to pay in cash during the protests, knowing that any electronic payment would immediately tie their location to the protests and would result in their persecution. The moral grandstanding of those who renounce privacy financial privacy uh, as a principle, it just means that they're privileged enough to be shielded from the oppressive effects of this surveillance. But the grandstanding isn't just blind to what's already happening around the world. It's also naive. Even if someone is a law-abiding citizen one day, that could change overnight. Laws change, social norms change, civil rights that you take for granted today might not always be there. But this financial surveillance apparatus that we've built and strengthened over decades will persist. Financial privacy isn't about enabling bad actors. It's about making sure that pervasive surveillance doesn't tip the balance of power so far away from the individual that we lose our free society. We must shift our perspective of financial privacy from a luxury to a necessity. Our day-to-day activities, whether they involve routine grocery shopping or political activism, require the shield of privacy to prevent undue scrutiny and control. And without this, our capacity to engage with the world and support organizations that we believe in is at risk of being arbitrarily severed. The thing is, we used to recognize the role of financial privacy in preserving freedom. It used to be the norm. So let's talk about how we got here. Bruce Fenton put it really well in a recent tweet. He basically said that an entire generation has been fooled into thinking that surveillance is a necessary part of finance. And that 30 years ago, when he started his career as a stockbroker and financial advisor, he could call you on the phone and sell to you without needing your date of birth or social security number. Indeed, a few decades ago, you could open a bank account without an ID. You just think about how much things have changed. Your mind's kind of blown, right? Now, a big part of that change came with the Patriot Act. This was first introduced in 2001, and it ushered in a radical departure in surveillance norms with severe AML and KYC requirements. But let's rewind even further. The woes of today's financial surveillance can be traced back in the U.S. to 1970 and the passing of the Bank Secrecy Act. This act mandated that if you make cash transactions over a certain amount, your bank will consider this suspicious activity and send the government a report about it. Now, today, people have become numb to this surveillance. We're so used to this reporting that we don't even blink an eye, but the Bank Secrecy Act at the time was incredibly controversial. It was challenged as unconstitutional because the government isn't meant to be able to get information about you without a warrant. The Bank Secrecy Act's mandated reporting of financial transactions was a form of government surveillance without a warrant or probable cause, and this was prohibited by the Fourth Amendment. But unfortunately... The Supreme Court upheld the act for a really dumb reason. They said that the $10,000 reporting threshold written into the act wasn't an undue burden because the amount was so high in 1970. By 1970 standards, $10,000 would have bought you two brand new Corvettes. It would have covered nearly half the cost of a brand new house. The median price of a new home in 1970 was $23,000. The $10,000 threshold was, in 1970, a life-altering amount. Today, due to inflation, its purchasing power has dwindled to a fraction of that amount. The truly infuriating thing about the court's decision was that they never stipulated that the threshold should be adjusted to keep up with inflation. So as we continue to lose purchasing power on the dollar, year after year, and who's been enjoying the 8.5% inflation from the past, how many years has it been now? The invasiveness of government financial surveillance digs deeper and deeper into our lives every single year. Instead of mandating suspicious activity reports every time we buy a house, today data is handed over about our everyday purchases. So as Bruce said, now just 25 years later, an entire generation thinks that this is normal, and this is how it should be. Let's put aside the regulatory side of surveillance for a moment and look at the other critical part of history that changed the face of privacy, the digital revolution. So the internet, it transformed the way that we share information, allowing us to communicate with each other easier than ever before but it has also become the most potent enabler of totalitarian surveillance that we have ever seen, allowing the collection of our most personal information at an unprecedented scale. We used to use cash for basically every purchase, and there was a limited ability, not only for businesses to learn about us, but for governments to collect that information. These businesses weren't connecting to the internet and uploading everything digitally. They had paper records. It was tremendously hard for the government to get information, and banks just had no capacity to learn information. But now we have a world where every digital move is tracked, especially our financial activities. In 1970, less than 20% of families had a credit card. And today, the average person has three to four cards, and we also use bank cards, and online banking, and mobile apps, and platforms like Plaid, and PayPal, and we live a digital trail of our payments everywhere we go. And today, all of this data is indiscriminately collected, regardless of the amount. So you can forget the $10,000 threshold. It doesn't even apply anymore. And it fuels a trillion-dollar industry with countless participants, advertisers, data brokers, financial services. And then everyone hands over this data to governments around the world in bulk. Why is this a thing? Why is the government, all the governments, why are they getting access to this by default? Why are they just getting the ability to bulk collect all of our financial data. Well, we mentioned the Fourth Amendment earlier and how, in the US, it's meant to protect and safeguard against the government being able to get all our information without a warrant. But in another supremely bad court decision, mind the pun, it was the Supreme Court, they ruled that we have no reasonable expectation of privacy if we hand our data over to a third party. This is what's known as the third party doctrine. The ruling was made in a time that hadn't envisioned The internet, the entire internet runs on third parties. So the third party doctrine has basically said that we're not allowed to have privacy on the internet. While the internet itself has enabled mass surveillance at a scale previously unimaginable, the third party doctrine has thrown out the fourth amendment in the US and said that the government is allowed to collect it all. Now keep in mind that other countries don't even need something like the third party doctrine to collect this information because they don't have the same constitutional protections in the first place. The situation's actually uniform across the globe. Powerful entities want to know what you're doing with your money at all times. So what can we do? Obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is cash. Great tool for privacy because it doesn't leave a digital trail. There are a few problems though. Cash is fast becoming a thing of the past. Many countries have banned cash for purchases over as little as $1,000. And other countries are scrapping withdrawals at banks. Can you believe that? This is in Australia. I just read this article. There are banks in Australia that are scrapping cash withdrawals at banks. So it is just a crazy situation. If you think that cash is still gonna be around a decade from now, you need to really think hard about why the government would want to have cash around uh, a decade from now. And all of this further stigmatizes the use of cash. Who here has ever tried to buy something from the Apple store using cash? Anyone? Here's how it goes down. You feel like a fugitive, right? I find myself suddenly starting to make excuses for why I would have that much cash on me. You know, I've been saving up for a while, or you know, I have a very limited budget, and this cash is an anomaly for this one purchase, or I'll say things like, oh, I just want the cheapest model because I don't have that much cash on me. Like, it's amazing how guilty I feel just like having a chunk of cash. Maybe I'm buying a computer, it's $3,000, and just having that makes me feel like I have to have all these excuses. But the thing is, I don't ever feel like I need to make excuses when I hand over my credit card. I can hand over and be like, yeah, put the, put the $7,000 one on that, that'd be great, thanks. And this is because cash is slowly and deliberately becoming culturally tainted. This shift is noticeable in everyday shopping experiences, but it's even more starkly felt when interacting with banks and other financial institutions. Who here has ever taken a cheque for four or five figures to a bank and tried to redeem it in cash? You you kind of get this look, like, you want what? Like, cash, I will have to talk to my supervisor. Oh, you'll have to make an appointment. You'll have to come back a week from now, and then a week from now, they'll say, make another appointment. Maybe maybe seven weeks from now, I don't know about you. You know, don't access your own money too often or in sums that are too large, or you'll be reported to authorities. That is a crazy situation, and it's not because you've done anything illegal. Using cash is not illegal, but there are increasingly draconian thresholds of how much cash is permissible. And instead of the presumption of innocence when we use cash in large amounts, there is a systematized presumption of guilt. The government and the banks tell us this is suspicious activity and will be further investigated. So we've slowly created this culture where we associate financial privacy with criminality. This isn't how a free society should operate. We should all feel comfortable making private financial transactions because it's completely within our right to do so. Now, recently, I've been trying to make an effort to use cash where I can. It helps stem the digital trail I leave behind me, but it's also out of principle. I want to remind people that it's okay to not want to share their purchases with a bank, or a third-party payment processor, or all the companies that these entities are selling that data to, or the countless governments around the world who are collecting it. It's okay to not want that. But the other major limitation of cash is that it just isn't a suitable medium in a global digital economy, where we overwhelmingly make our purchases online. We need electronic payment methods that also give us the ability to keep our transactions to ourselves. And until recently, this was not possible. Any attempts to achieve this were shut down by governments. And then a bunch of cypherpunks started building systems that couldn't be shut down because there were no central focal points to target. The financial revolution that Bitcoin brought us enabled us to make digital transactions while bypassing the surveilled and controlled traditional financial rails. It brought us permissionless, decentralized, and censorship-resistant money system. And it led to a Cambrian explosion of other cryptocurrencies. Because there are no gatekeepers to these systems, no central entities to regulate. Cryptocurrencies don't have the same built-in surveillance from KYC, and they don't enable automatic bulk data collection between banks and governments, because you don't need banks to use them. However, cryptocurrencies do not guarantee your privacy when you use them. In fact, they unfortunately have the potential to be privacy's worst nightmare. First, many cryptocurrencies are public records of all transactions, and we'll talk about this in a moment. But second, cryptocurrencies are digital, and digital privacy is really hard. Thomas Drake, former senior executive at the NSA, he's a digital surveillance expert and whistleblower, once said, there is no absolute anonymity electronically. There are means that make it more difficult to identify you, but there's always a digital trail. So let's learn about the ways to eliminate this digital trail as much as possible. We can actually achieve better privacy than you might realise. Now, remember, there's basically no hope of privacy in the traditional financial system. At least with cryptocurrencies, privacy is possible. And achieving robust privacy is gonna be a lot easier with some cryptocurrencies than with others. So I'll provide a bunch of tips for digital financial privacy. As I go through each tip, I'll explain the tracking threat model that we're trying to protect against. So the first step, Use privacy coins. Now, there are a lot of disclaimers in this one. (laughs) We'll break them down as we explain all of this. Because privacy coins that are referred to as privacy coins vary dramatically in how they do or don't protect your privacy. And on top of that, you have to use them properly. But for now, let's just talk about one of the main benefits of using a privacy coin, which we'll define as a type of cryptocurrency that prioritizes the anonymity of its users and employs various techniques to conceal information about transactions. So most decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have big ledgers called blockchains that publicly record all information about each transaction for anyone to see. Now this on-chain data, often called a transaction graph, includes where money came from, where it went to, how much was sent, timestamps of when it all happened. And all of this information is publicly visible for many different cryptocurrencies. You can look on Blockchain Explorers and easily search through all of it for each transaction. But, On-chain data goes so much deeper than just these elements. The blockchain contains information like which address types were used in a transaction. So in Bitcoin alone, there are lots of different address types. P2SH, Betch32, there's SegWit-enabled addresses versus non-SegWit. Then there are different transaction features that might reveal themselves in this on-chain data, like lock time, replaced by fee. Each kind of wallet software is going to have its own kind of trace. For example, one wallet software might produce a transaction feature that looks very different from the ones produced by another piece of software. Exchanges and other big entities generate transactions programmatically. And when they send these transactions to the network, they'll write them in a way that leaves their own kinds of footprints. And you can look at how the change amounts are written. When someone gets changed from a transaction, the position of the change address as it appears in the transaction can sometimes be a telling feature for a particular entity. Some exchanges or wallets might always put the change address in the same place in the list of outputs. Either it's always first in the list or it's always last in the list, etc. Basically, there is a huge list of things that can possibly identify and help de anonymize a transaction just using on-chain data alone. And researchers from Princeton released a paper outlining a bunch of them. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin that don't implement privacy features on-chain are revealing a ton of information that will be there forever. Now, in the early days, Crypto users weren't thinking about any of this. Many thought that if they were careful to never tie their real-world identity to any of their accounts, then they'd be able to stay anonymous when using it. I kind of think of this, like Bitcoin's idea of privacy, as like a toddler's idea of privacy. Like, you can't see me because I put my head under a pillow. It's like, but I can see your body sticking out. You know, that's kind of what Bitcoin privacy is. When you use a cryptocurrency where your transaction data is perpetually visible on the blockchain, you're essentially wagering against technological advancement. Your bet is that no one will ever possess the capacity to assemble these scattered pieces of data that you've left in your wake and tie your identity to the transaction. Especially as we've just witnessed a giant AI boom in the last year, I mean, this seems like a pretty naive opinion. This is definitely not a wager that I am willing to make. A good privacy coin won't make this data visible on the blockchain in the first place, or they'll try to decrease as much of this data being visible as possible. And this is one of the huge advantages of privacy coins. So there are lots of different privacy coins that use different techniques to try to get better privacy for users. Zcash and Monero are two of the most popular ones. So let's dive into them and see how they're actually protecting privacy. Starting with Monero, here are some of the techniques used to reduce on-chain data available about transactions. Monero has confidential transactions as part of its Ring CT protocol, which hides amounts being transacted. To hide the recipient of the money, there's a stealth address. So instead of sending money directly to someone's public address, the sender generates a one-time stealth address for the transaction. It's based on the receiver's public address and some random data, so although the stealth address is recorded on the public blockchain, an observer can't link that to someone's real public address. Monero doesn't technically hide who the sender of a transaction is. They do leak some data on it. But they obfuscate the sender amongst a bunch of other possible senders in what's called a ring signature. So the current ring size for Monero is 16. So when a transaction is signed, the sender's signature is mixed with 15 other decoy signatures taken from past transactions to form a ring of possible senders. So it's an anonymity set of 16, which you can think of like a 1 in 16 chance of guessing who the sender is. And a final privacy tool used by Monero that isn't about on-chain privacy, but I think it's a cool privacy tool, is Dandelion++, which is a protocol that obscures your IP address when creating a transaction. Instead of broadcasting your transaction directly to the entire network so that everyone can see where it originated, it gets passed to other nodes in the network first, sort of like how Tor works. So now let's look at Zcash, another popular privacy coin. And instead of using different tools to hide different aspects of the transaction or obfuscate with decoys, when you transact privately with Zcash, everything is encrypted so that none of this information makes its way to the blockchain. The way Zcash privacy works is with shielded pools. Money transacted inside this shielded pool is opaque. You can't see who the sender is, you can't see who the recipient is, you can't see the amount that was transacted. So instead of an anonymity set being 16, uh, where the privacy set is limited to the number of transactions mixed together at that single moment in time, the anonymity set of Zcash is everyone who has ever put money into the shielded pool that you're using which is over 1.1 million for the sapling-shielded pool and 305,000 for the orchard-shielded pool as of February this year. Zcash also uses a fixed fee rate so that this doesn't leak unnecessary information about a transaction. So by using coins that radically reduce the amount of information that you can even see about a transaction on the blockchain, you're already taking huge steps towards improving your digital financial privacy. But using privacy coins is not enough you have to use them properly. Which brings me to tip number two. Don't use pass-through privacy, i.e. where you take your transparent coins, you exchange them into a privacy coin, then you send them straight back out into the transparent world, into a transparent coin, et cetera. Now, many people believe that if they exchange their coins into a privacy coin and out again, it will somehow wash them. It doesn't work like that. Privacy does not work as a pass-through mechanism, no matter which coin you're using, because de-anonymizing transactions is all about pattern matching. So just recently, a blog explained how hackers used malware in the Electrum Atom wallet to steal funds, and the blog detailed how these funds were able to be tracked to a Bitcoin address, then converted into Monero, and then converted back to Bitcoin. And the movement was easily tracked the whole way. How is this possible? Well, obviously, if you're using any kind of centralized exchange, they're going to know how funds are moved. But just from the mass tracking perspective, remember that list of all the transaction features and other on-chain data that can fingerprint transactions? If funds pass briefly through a privacy coin, an analyst will just pick up the cent again on the other side, matching attributes from before the funds were exchanged with funds that were made transparent again. It's an incredibly effective method. When you combine this with timing analysis, it's particularly potent. For example, if an observer notices that a certain amount is exchanged into a privacy coin and a similar amount exchanged for something else shortly after, it might be possible to infer that those transactions are linked, even if the details of what happened inside the privacy enhanced tool are obscured. Even if funds are moved to a new chain, if the amounts are similar and timing analysis is employed, tracing the movement of the funds is possible. A swift in and out transaction will leave fingerprints on either side of a transaction that can be pattern-matched. So it doesn't matter whether you're passing your money through Monero or Shielded Zcash, privacy comes at rest, not as a pass-through mechanism. So how do you use these coins properly? Well, when you think of privacy, think of private storage, not private transactions actually store your coins within a privacy-enhanced environment, like a shielded pool, for an extended period. And by doing so, your funds become significantly harder to track amongst all other transactions. Now, this doesn't mean that you can never leave these private ecosystems. Privacy is just more effectively preserved over time rather than just during the act of a single transaction. So this way, if you do eventually want to move your funds to a transparent ecosystem like Bitcoin or back into a transparent address, you can, because timing analysis won't be useful for matching transactions. But there are still other pattern matching that could work on the transparent side. So that brings us to tip number three. Find ways to randomise behaviour and transaction attributes. So, for example, if you always use a particular address type, if you always use a particular wallet that writes out transactions in a particular way, if you always send funds during certain hours or on certain days, breaking up your patterns can be helpful. So let's quickly talk about coin mixes and coin join transactions in light of, of tips two and three. So coin mixes allow you to tumble your coins around with a bunch of others in the hope that the trail is lost and no one can tell which coins are yours and when they come out the other side. And a coin join is one kind of coin mixing. These tools are similar to pass through privacy. The anonymity set is capped at the number of inputs in that one transaction at that one particular moment in time. Now, you can think of a coin mixer's idea of privacy like a teenager's idea of privacy. You know, one that's kind of angsty and shouts like, you can't prove it was me, you know, and they think that they can just get away with that because uh, plausible deniability or something like that. So I'll just reiterate, plausible deniability is not a good privacy strategy. Imagine someone walking and they briefly pass behind a curtain and then they keep walking out the other side. Yes, there is a brief moment where you lost track of them behind the curtain but you saw them walk out the other side. So even if you lost sight of them momentarily, you can join the dots, just like other forms of pass-through privacy. Now, of course, coin mixes, they're not quite that simple, so don't get angry in comments or questions after or whatever, but chain analysts have proven to be able to follow coins through mixes and coin join transactions, so that's worth noting. And this has been confirmed by chain analytics companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic. Keep in mind, these companies are billion-dollar companies that have tremendous amounts of resources to put into just honing in on whatever data they can scrape from the internet to try to de-anonymize transactions. So again, pass-through privacy doesn't work. A swift in-and-out transaction will leave fingerprints on either side that can be pattern-matched. So remember that. But there are things you can do to make things like coin mixes a little better. Again, if you're dealing with transparent coins, there's a lot of on-chain data that you just can't eliminate. So I don't recommend it. Coin mixes will only take you so far. But here are some things that will help a little. So the rule that the longer you leave your coins in a private ecosystem, the better, does apply here too. The longer you tumble your coins, the better. Now, this might be prohibitively expensive if you're using something like Bitcoin and you want to tumble your coins for several days straight. You will lose all of your Bitcoin doing that. Uh, But other coins, it might be more feasible. So Bitcoin Cash has their own variant of CoinJoin called Cash Fusion, where you don't need to send money in set denominations. You can mix any amount. Now, you can actually keep your coins mixing in the background on your computer uh, for several days and only pay a few pennies. And this increases the anonymity set of the coins dramatically and improves your privacy. But again, watch for that pattern matching when you pull them back out again. These are transparent coins with a lot of data that can be analysed. If you withdraw the funds to an address type you often use, to a wallet you usually use, if you use all your old habits when taking out these coins out of this private ecosystem, it might still be possible to trace your funds. So be aware of those things once your coins are tumbled. And there are a couple of privacy tools worth mentioning that add privacy to transparent coins. So the first is Railgun, which is a shielded pool where you can send Ethereum, Polygon, and any EVM chain. Ethereum is notoriously bad for privacy because a big job of chain analysts is to figure out the purpose of different funds. Like, what is this being used for? And on Ethereum, they literally write the purpose right there in the blockchain. You know, if you're sending money to Uniswap, It'll just say that right there in the chain, like this was a Uniswap transaction. Not in so many words, but there are identifiers that point to all of the users and whatever smart contracts you're, um, you're entering your money in. So something like Railgun, which encrypts all of that data and puts the coins into a shielded pool so that you can't tell what, what funds are for or amounts or where they're going to or from This could be really helpful. And Nomada is a project which is trying to create a kind of shielded pool that can work across all chains, with the idea being that the larger the anonymity set, the better. And what better way to create a large anonymity set than to make the pool compatible with all coins? So again, if you can make your transactions in an encrypted environment, you will have much better privacy. Hiding on-chain data is a critical part of financial privacy when it comes to crypto transactions. But there's other data that needs to be safeguarded too. So the fourth tip is to protect against OSINT privacy leaks, which is basically the digital trail that you leave behind you when you use the internet in general. So OSINT stands for Open Source Intelligence, and a lot of OSINT that we're interested in is just gonna be network-level privacy. So for example, your IP address. Are you revealing that when you interact with cryptocurrency ecosystems, or are you using a VPN or Tor? And also, keep in mind, just an aside, if you're using a VPN, you're you're trusting that VPN company, so that's definitely something that you should uh, consider. Now, there are lots of ways that someone might get your IP address as you interact in various ways with cryptocurrency. Nodes in the crypto network can collect IP addresses, for example, and you'll find that chain analytics firms actually run a lot of nodes in each network to try and help them collect as much data as possible and trace transactions. Websites that you visit also collect IP addresses, which includes blockchain explorers. When you use a blockchain explorer, I mean, you're just passively viewing data on a website, so you're not actually interacting with the network. So for most people, this won't seem like sensitive activity where they'd need to hide their IP address. Unfortunately, many chain analytics firms capitalize on this lax privacy. They've been known to secretly run blockchain explorers as honeypots to log people's IP addresses along with any other data that they can capture. And while you're not actually using the network when you look up transactions or addresses in a Block Explorer, you are declaring that you have interest in that transaction or address, which is another data point that can help de-anonymize transactions. Wallets can be another huge point of data leakage. In order for a wallet to be able to tell you how much money is in that wallet, it has to know which addresses belong to you. And it has to query those addresses on the blockchain. But the wallet on your phone isn't storing its own copy of the blockchain. That would be way too large and data intensive. Instead, you're probably running what's called a light wallet on your phone, and the wallet has its own servers that host nodes and have a copy of the relevant blockchains. So, Electrum wallet will have Electrum servers. Atomic wallet has atomic servers. Metamask runs Ethereum servers during Infura, which runs copies of the Ethereum blockchain, etc. So, let's say I have in my wallet address one, two, and three. My light wallet will send a request across the internet to the wallet server and query balances for address number one, address number two, and address number three. This is a huge deal for privacy because that query activity is often logged by the receiving server along with your IP address. So one way to improve your privacy is to run a full node. It's not convenient. It's not easy. I'm really sorry. Uh, you have to make sure that you're keeping your system up to date and patched. And if you're not, you're at risk of losing your funds. But it is really good for privacy. When you run a full node, you maintain a copy of the blockchain on your own system. And this means that when you need to know your address balance or look up a transaction, your node can find this information directly from its local copy of the blockchain without needing to expose your crypto address and IP to a third party. You can also connect your light wallet to your own node in most cases, so you can get the convenience of less data consumption on your phone and better privacy. If you don't want to run your own node, there's a really interesting new data market called RKO that allows you to pay to get this blockchain data from a decentralized marketplace instead of giving your data to centralized servers that might be seized or subpoenaed. Different wallets can be better for privacy than others in other ways too. So the Zingo wallet for Zcash, for example, gives you the option with memos to choose the privacy level that you want. Either not download any memos, you could download all memos, or you could choose to download just the memos that belong to you. And each of those tiers will reveal a different amount of information about you. I wish that more wallets would integrate this kind of user choice when it comes to privacy. Another way that wallets might leak your data is by showing you exchange rates, or in other words, your balance, for example, in US dollars. To know what the balance in your wallet in USD terms is, your wallet has to ping some API and get that data. So that's one more leak that might potentially tie you to a transaction, like, oh, she just got the exchange rate for this crypto. She must have opened her wallet. Perhaps one of these transactions just sent was hers. All of this data helps put pieces together. Now, something I first noticed in other Zcash wallets and was delighted to see it was that I can opt out of having the wallet show me USD or fiat amounts. Choosing a wallet that offers this is going to help your privacy. Another thing that I first saw in the Zek Nighthawk wallet was a warning pop-up when I went to view a transaction after it was sent. Now, often wallets, after you've sent or received a transaction, it'll give you the ability to view your transaction on a blockchain explorer. By going to this third-party block explorer website, your device might be fingerprinted, your IP address logged, among other things. It's not great for your privacy. Now, The first time I used Nighthawk and clicked this view transaction button, I was so happy to get a pop-up warning me that I was about to do something that was bad for my privacy. So two big thumbs up to Nighthawk for helping educate and protect their users. A lot of people probably don't even realise that this is a potential privacy leak. Now for this fifth tip, instead of suggesting proactive measures, I emphasize the importance of sidestepping potential pitfalls, but I will also offer some proactive tips. So this fifth tip for more private crypto transactions is to beware of some of the active analysis tricks used to de-anonymize transactions. So what do I mean by active analysis tricks? So far, we've only talked about passive analysis. So that means just observing information on the blockchain and off. Active analysis techniques are where blockchain analysts are actively interacting with the blockchain in an attempt to try to link transactions together and de-anonymize them. One technique is the Danan gift attack. This is where someone intentionally interacts with a target by sending them a small amount of cryptocurrency, creating a known transaction that can then be traced on the blockchain. Who has had random small amounts just appear in their wallet? Don't put your hand up. We don't want to know. It's all captured on video. Don't tell them you have a wallet. So The target might not even notice that this transaction is even there, because often this gift size is so small. Such small amounts are referred to as dust, so you might hear people refer to this as a kind of dusting attack. The intention is for the target to sweep up the small amount into a transaction with their other coins when they go to spend the coins or move them. And as the attacker's funds are now mixed with the target's own funds, this would allow the attacker to link the victim's transactions together and follow their movement. Now, one thing you could do to avoid this trap is to use a wallet that allows you to choose specific UTXOs when you make a transaction and deliberately avoid others. So, you could avoid using these dust amounts, but even better, use privacy coins that hide addresses and transaction amounts. A denand gift attack would be ineffective against privacy coins like Zcash. While an attacker could send funds to a known address, tracing what happens to those funds afterwards would be challenging, because the privacy mechanism of coins like this. But there are also gift attacks where amounts are fingerprinted. So because cryptocurrencies can be broken down into really small fractions of a coin with lots of decimal places, so eight in the case of Zcash, 12 in the case of Monero, the amount gifted could be a tiny, distinct and recognisable amount. For example, something like .00001678. So this is a fingerprint that might resurface later. It turns out that these tiny amounts often persist even after multiple hops. So if you send your coins to an exchange, or to a transparent address, be careful that this fingerprint isn't following you there. If an amount suddenly reappears in a publicly visible transaction and that exact decimal intact or minus a predictable fee, it can be possible to link where that money came from. Another active attack to watch out for that's specific to Monero is a decoy attack. This is a known technique that chain analyst companies and other entities actively engage in, where the network is flooded with transactions. It's actually not that expensive to do. And those with vast means are looking for ways to break privacy coins. So because all decoys used in a ring signature are all real public keys pulled from the network, if there are any decoys used in a particular transaction that you know belong to you, you can cross those off your list as possible senders and increase your chances of figuring out who the actual sender is. It's worth noting that when governments get control of Monero funds via dark market seizures or exchange seizures, it has the same effect. These outputs are now in the control of government entities, so if they show up in any future transactions as decoys, they can cross themselves off the list of possible senders. This is one of the greatest weaknesses of Ring signatures, so I'm super happy that Monero is looking to get rid of the Ring CT protocol for hiding senders and replace it with a protocol called Seraphis that draws inspiration from the technology developed by another privacy coin, Fero. Again, plausible deniability isn't a great privacy tool. So as far as Zcash is concerned, it's worth mentioning for any watching at home who aren't as familiar with these coins that when you use Zcash, you can actually choose whether or not you want your transaction to be private. This has come in handy because it allows exchanges to support transparent Zcash and still remain compliant, whereas many exchanges have delisted other privacy coins, so as a result, they can be much harder to purchase, so that is an advantage. But if you want really robust privacy, make sure that you're sending money from a shielded pool. So, it's helpful to visualise Zcash transactions like this. There's a shielded pool, and sending money within that pool, super private. Sending money completely outside of that pool, not at all private. It's just like a Bitcoin transaction, right? If you send money into a shielded pool, no one can see where the money is going to, but they can see that it was you who sent it. And if you send money out, of a shielded pool. People can see where it went, but they don't know anything about where it came from. It's a misunderstanding to think that sending money to a transparent address from a shielded pool undermines your privacy. It doesn't if you're using it correctly. No one can see where this money came from. It's passed through privacy that is the problem. If you send money to a transparent address, It doesn't undermine your privacy at all if you are keeping your money at rest in a shielded pool and being aware of OSINT leakage. So that's an important distinction to be aware of. So basically, there is a lot of data out there that can tie real identities to transactions. Patterns are really easy to find, given all the data, both on-chain and off, that we leave behind when we use cryptocurrency. And as AI gets better and better, finding these patterns becomes easier and easier. There is an industry making billions of dollars de anonymizing our transactions. If you think that oh, I'm just going to slip through the cracks, no one's looking at me, these people are paid a lot of money to look at all of you. So be aware of that when you're making transactions. And yet, all of this is still better than using traditional finance. The reason is because traditional payment rails are controlled, with surveillance in every corner, while crypto has no gatekeepers. So if you are careful with how you use this system, you can protect your financial privacy. Traditional privacy tools like cash continue to dwindle in relevance, but cryptocurrencies like privacy coins present themselves as torchbearers of financial privacy in this new digital era. Just remember, with this promise comes caveats. The level of privacy that you get is contingent upon the choices you make, so make sure that you make good ones. The onus is on us to embrace our options and exercise our right to privacy. Now, we stand at the threshold of a new era of financial history, and it's becoming increasingly important to challenge prevailing notions about how much surveillance we're willing to tolerate in our lives. Financial privacy is not about evading legality, but about affirming liberty. Financial surveillance is currently everywhere, but it's neither a necessary nor an inevitable feature of a monetary system. Privacy in our financial affairs is not only possible, but it's integral, to the functioning of a free society. The future is not yet written. We can ride it by reclaiming our digital lives. Thank you.
1: All right, um, so we have a number of questions, but I'm gonna start off um with the question, I guess, um, as someone who helps develop Zcash, and so for a lot of this, there's a lot of very technical, very subtle details that users need to remember. And generally, like users tend to get things wrong because there's so many things that they have to remember. Um, so I guess for people who are developing Zcash and developing the wallets, like what kinds of things would you tell us to make Zcash as user friendly and sort of help Prevent mistakes, so users just don't, just don't have to think about it.
0: Well, I would say like it took me a long time to get into Zcash. Um, I like I think when it first started, um, I, me and my friends set up computers and tried to like mine it, and then we were like, "Oh, this is very confusing." And like I just kind of forgot about it for years. The big thing that stopped me diving into it was honestly first understanding like well how do i even make a private transaction like is like how is there like a, a thing that i need to do a plugin i need to install is it like a, a a separate wallet type that's a shielded wallet that i put it into and so i think Like, even in wallets, um, like a frequently asked question section that explains, like, if you send money to a T address, that is a transparent address. If you send money to a Z address, this is a shielded address. Kind of explaining that mechanism and that it's all about address types probably would have gotten me in a lot sooner. And it's the most frequent question that I get from people when they're asking about this. They were like, how do I even do it? It's like just... User's address, that's, it's as simple as that. It seems so obvious to all of us, but if you're not aware of these systems, it can be really daunting. Um, but yeah, just things like uh, like little tips that pop up that remind you about privacy and which things may actually be jeopardizing your privacy, that's not gonna be great for everyone because a lot of people don't like that stuff. Me, personally, I love being educated about that stuff. If, someone, if I'm using something and suddenly I get a thing saying, hey, did you know that could hurt your privacy? That's super. I could be like, "Oh, I didn't know, it, and now I do," and I could make a more active decision in how much privacy I want to reveal. So stuff like that could be really helpful. Great. If there's wallet developers
1: here, or if you know a wallet developer, please, uh, you know, come engage in this conversation <laughs> after this. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess. Okay. So another question um, that came from someone watching this talk is how would you help someone understand the importance of privacy who's just starting to learn about our ecosystem?
0: It's, it's hard uh, because as we know, privacy, like surveillance is so pervasive and so people, a lot of us just, we dived into this internet era without even being aware that that might be a thing that could be an issue one day. So we just hand out our data to everyone and so I think for people just starting out, look at the giant, low-hanging fruit in your life, and just start to patch that first. Don't worry about the tiny details of, oh, well, which you know, metadata am I leaking in this particular fringe case? Start saying, like, are you using a Gmail account? who is using a G- again don't tell me i don't want to know i'll just get sad if you're using gmail just stop they're collecting everything in your emails they're analyzing it and tagging it they're feeding that into algorithms to create profiles on you that they're selling to advertisers who then learn that data about you based on the people that they're targeting and the people that google gives them access to don't use Gmail. Use something like Proton Mail. Uh, use something like Tutanota. Both are more privacy-respecting uh, email services that don't have access to your emails. If you're using SMS for anything, there are literally regulations that dictate globally that you are not allowed to encrypt the communication channels if you're a telecom provider anywhere in the world. This is uniform in in every country. They're not allowed to encrypt them. That is why sending an SMS, making a normal phone call is completely in the open. What you put in those telecommunication channels is up to you though. So if you're using something like Signal to communicate, you're encrypting that package first and then sending it out. So no one can get access to what you say on a video call, on a phone call, what you say in a message. Stop using SMS. Get everyone in your life onto something like Signal. You know, um, things like that. Just look for the giant low-hanging fruit if you're still using. Facebook um, at all, but for DMs, you know, just stop communicating with people there, message them and say, hey, this is my signal number, it's a really easy app, message me here. All of that stuff, like which browser you're using, are you using Chrome? Stop it, immediately. They're collecting everything that you send out, even if you don't press enter. You type in a search, you're like, where can I buy marriage one? No, I'm not going to send that, delete, delete. Too bad, it's already been sent to Google. They have logged all of that because they're capturing every keystroke you're putting into your search. So stop using Chrome, stop using Google search, opt for something like, you know, Brave is a great option because out of the box, really great default privacy that's going to protect you. So just look for these really easy, low-hanging fruit and start to clean that up, because honestly, unless you guys are giving out the market signal that you care about privacy by actually opting into these tools, these people don't know. Developers aren't going to want to create this stuff if no one's using it. So start opting for these tools that give you back your privacy, start voting with your money and with your choices and saying like, yes, privacy is important to me and I choose to use your product.
1: Great, Uh, I'll also give a shout out to the Rise Up folks. Um, They make uh, email and I know them and they're amazing. So that's another option as well. Um, Okay, so another question. Um, This year marked 10 years since Edward Snowden, since the Edward Snowden revelations. We've made a lot of progress um, in some areas of privacy but a lot of things still need to be developed. Uh, In your opinion, what should be prioritized for mass adoption of privacy and how can we help?
0: Mass adoption of privacy. So this is is difficult. Um, I think the biggest thing to come out of Snowden, obviously we went from HTTP to HTTPS for basically everything. I think before him it was like 20% of the internet was um, encrypted in transit and then after his revelations it was google and apple that said hang on we didn't know about some of this and they started you know encrypting their sites which just transferred it to like 80% of information is now encrypted that was huge and that came from the business side that was not users opting in and saying i'm going to choose privacy that was privacy focused people starting companies or being in companies and changing their policies you know it was when whatsapp decided to institute you know the um, open whisper systems you know the signal protocol that they gave encrypted messenger um, opportunities to billions of people around the world. That that was huge. Don't use WhatsApp now. It's kind of shit. Um, but back you know, when they did that, that was a giant, giant transformation. Um, so if you're creating a product and there's a way that you can make it a little more privacy friendly, you can make a huge impact. I also think culture is a major focus we need to Think about, start pushing back against that narrative of "I got nothing to hide" or "privacy as a principle isn't a thing." Remind them there are people around the world who are literally dying, who are literally having their lives destroyed because they don't have privacy. So good for you that you have a lovely, safe life. I'm very happy for you. But privacy is of fundamental importance to a free society. So just start reminding people of that, and just remind them that they're very lucky, but privacy is essential for maintaining a free society, and we do risk losing it if we don't. Fight for it. Yeah. Um,
1: I guess, yeah, so kind of learning about uh, your role in teaching people about privacy systems, where do you see people make mistakes, and how can we learn from where people make mistakes or what things are really easy for people?
0: It's interesting because I put out two very different kinds of content. I started with a YouTube channel that does super dry, deep dive videos into this is how this protocol works. And surprisingly, like people watch them, and I'm always amazed, because I just learn about it because I'm interested, I put out a video, and people are like, this is interesting. And then I started putting out completely different kind of, content, Um, like I I was duplicating that content and trying TikTok and Instagram where people have no idea about privacy and no one watched it. So then I started creating specific content where I just dress up in like ridiculous outfits and put on dumb voices and say things like, also Gmail's not good. And what was shocking to me is the number of people who'd respond and be like, what, Gmail is not good? And I'm like, oh wow, people don't know this stuff. So I'm like, I'm shocked at how much people don't understand about their privacy being invaded. And I realized somewhere along the way that it's not that people don't care about privacy. I actually find that when you drill down, they do care. They just have no idea what's going on. So I think the more we can educate people and explain to them, like actually how these things are taking place. Like yes, your Snapchat uh, is not private. There are government tools that give them backdoors to all of that, and they're exploited all the time. You know, let people know about this stuff. And suddenly, when it becomes personal, when it's about tools that they're using in their lives, suddenly it makes their you Perk up. If you just talk about privacy as a principle, people don't get it. They don't understand why this applies to them. But if you put it in context of how it applies to their life and the things that they're doing, the videos overwhelmingly on TikTok and Instagram um, that do well are all about like the most popular tools. They want to know like, is Discord safe? And I'm like, of course, Discord isn't safe. But you know, I can't say it like that. I have to be like, great question. Discord is not. Private. Um, but just like, I mean, having patience with this as well, because like when I first started out, I remember the first, like I was I had a crypto channel. Mine was a crypto channel since like 2013, I was making crypto content, because I came from the economics background, I was interested in competing currencies, like this Hayekian idea of how do we have a free world by embracing alternative money. And then along the way I just realised how can you even participate in decentralised systems if the government knows you're doing it and if they don't want you to, they could just Target you directly. Like, you need privacy to protect yourself if you want to use these systems. So, I like you know, transferred in the first video I did. I was like, I read a tweet by Snowden, and I was kind of obsessed with him at this stage. I like just read his memoir, and I was like, holy moly, there's like Tempest and Turmoil and Turbine and all of the, you know, X key, key score or whatever it is, like all these tools, and he's explaining how they all work, and my mind was blown, and he wrote this tweet, and he's like, I don't use Wi-Fi because of these, you know, publicly accessible access points that are visible. And I'm like, what? So, I just kind of went down this rabbit hole and I was like, guys, did you know there are public lists of like Wi-Fi access points and potentially this could track your location? So, I just kind of went into this like deep dive, but I started out being so naive and having no concept. That's where most people are. The vast majority of people are at that naive point where they don't even realise what they're doing could be hurting them. Like, as I said, the most important thing is that regimes change, norms change, but your data is forever remind that people of that because they, even if they don't think they need to protect it now, they don't know who's gonna have access to that data in future. They don't know what government's gonna be in control, you know, which demographic that government might not like. So just remind them of that and remind them that every piece of data that they're leaking into the world by using that Gmail account or that SMS is gonna be stored permanently in a record associated with their identity and accessible to whoever wants to access it in the future. Absolutely, well thank you so much for the work that you do.
1: Thank you for telling us all of this and let's give Naomi a hand.